On behalf of Weinberg Information Services, this is Bob Keebler, and joining us today is Ted Batson, JD MBA CPA, an Executive Vice President with Renaissance in Indianapolis, Indiana. Renaissance is a company devoted solely to charitable remainder and charitable lead trusts, and Ted brings approximately 20 years of experience in this area. Welcome, Ted. Thank you, Bob. Uh, Ted, what I'd like to chat about today is in the context to somewhat of all these inversions that are happening, how people may want to examine the efficacy of a charitable range of trust. And I think everyone recognizes this is not, um, there's no black letter law in this. So let's start with the big picture. Under Section 664 of the Code, what is a charitable trust and why would someone even think about it in this context? Well, Bob, uh, thanks for inviting me today, and I'll tell you, a charitable remainder trust, as you mentioned, is a trust described in Code Section 664. And a charitable remainder trust has a few moving parts. We're going to start with uh, a person who is going to transfer assets, and typically we're going to be looking at appreciated assets to get, get the biggest bang for the buck, and they're going to want to transfer those appreciated assets into a specially drafted trust that has the requisite provisions to be a charitable remainder trust, a qualified charitable remainder trust. And in creating this trust, they're going to receive an income tax deduction, and they're going to be transferring the assets into a trust that's exempt from tax itself. And at the end of the term of the trust, one or more charitable organizations that our initial settler has named is going to receive the remainder interest in the trust. So what benefits does a person receive for creating a charitable remainder trust? Well, there are a handful uh, of benefits that you get from creating a trust, a charitable remainder trust. Uh, you get an income tax deduction that's based on uh, the length of the term of the trust and the payout rate of the trust and so forth. Uh, you get so, the avoidance of gain in the asset you transferred. So if we transfer an appreciated asset to the trust, so uh, for example, some publicly traded stock that I bought 30 years ago and has appreciated greatly in value. Uh, I'm going to transfer that to the trust. As an exempt trust, it doesn't pay tax when that trust, when those assets are sold, when that stock is sold. And so accordingly, uh, I get to avoid the taxation of that gain, at least in an immediate sense. That leaves me with a bigger basket of capital to put at work uh, than I would have if I sold this without the benefit of this tax-exempt trust and invested the, the net proceeds. So I've got a bigger basket, a bigger amount at work, more capital at work, and I'm going to have tax-free uh, growth on that portfolio because the trust is now, or the, the assets are now in a uh, tax-exempt trust. And then over the life of this trust, I'm going to receive distributions. Now the distributions are going to come out to me uh, the, in a taxable manner, but Depending on how the trust uh, portfolio is invested, I may be able to achieve some tax efficiencies in the distributions I receive from the CRT. And then I also have some ability in the way I craft the trust when I draft it up front to give myself a better or a better return than I might get outside trust. So, for example, can draft this trust to pay me 5% of the annual value of the trust, refigured every year. So maybe in the first year, uh, if I transfer a million dollars into the trust, maybe in the first year I'll get a $50,000 return. And then depending on what the value is at the end of that first year, I might get more. I might get a little less than 50000 based on 5% of that subsequent year value. So I have some ability, if I grow these trust assets over time and at a rate faster than my payout rate, to get larger distributions in the future. 
And then not to be lost in the shuffle of these tax benefits are the fact that I'm creating a charitable legacy. So when we look at folks who are looking to do this, do this type of planning, it's really uh, interesting to hear from them what they might want to do from a charitable planning perspective, what charity they might want to favor with the remainder interest in their trust. So uh, we've seen all kinds of, of uh, actions that people have taken, everything from making gifts that will go on to fund scholarships or endow a professorship, to funding a, a choral program at a symphony, to funding uh, local arts organizations, to funding social service groups that work with youth and seniors, uh, and a wide variety of, of charitable interests that can be fulfilled with a charitable remainder trust. And often this is an opportunity for people to really give back to their community and establish a legacy. In addition to these kind of standard chari charitable uh, beneficiaries that we might think of, this is also a way for a family to look at creating their own private family foundation as the remainder beneficiary of the trust, or to use a donor advised fund as another alternative uh, to the remainder beneficiary. I probably should point out that none of these are mutually exclusive. We can have a charitable remainder trust that is designed to accomplish a number of these things all with the same trust, or occasionally it makes sense to look at having more than one trust depending on maybe the payout structure of the trust or other benefits that we might obtain from using different uh, different planning techniques. So that, that, CRT is not a one-size-fits-all tool. It does have some bells and whistles that we can uh, we can utilize uh, to make a, a perfectly customized and crafted plan for a family. So let's take the big picture. I'm considering the sale of a large piece of property. I'm considering the sale of a large position. I'm going through uh, one of these inversions. When should a CRT be considered? I mean, who should do these? And, you know, just from a quantitative perspective, what kind of mathematical benefit is there? Sure. So if I'm looking at a transaction that involves, as you said, you gave a couple of good examples there of different circumstances in which I might want to look at a charitable remainder trust. So, for example, I have a large stock position. I've got a large amount of gain. Say I, I have a, a stock position that's valued at a million dollars that I paid $75,000 for some time ago, and so I've got a significant amount of gain. Well, the more gain that I can avoid, the greater my tax savings as a result of this transaction uh, and so, therefore, the, the bigger economic benefit I get from uh, creating the trust with that stock. So if I have a large gain versus a smallish gain, uh, I'm going to lean toward, from a quantitative perspective, I'm going to look at the, the larger gain position as being ideal for a CRT. When I'm dealing with real estate or, or similar kinds of property, it's a similar kind of analysis. I'm going to be looking at saying, well, do I have a, a lot of gain in this property or do I just have a small amount? And when we look at uh, real property and closely held business interests, we look at a few other wrinkles that enter to the mix. For example, on real property, we want that property be, to be free of any encumbrances at the time we transfer it into the CRT in order to avoid uh, any unrelated business taxable income. UBTI, as it's known, is subject to a 100% excise tax on the charitable remainder trust. So we want to make sure uh, that we're staying away from that confiscatory tax regime. In addition, we're going to want to make sure in the case of real property sales and closely held business sales and sometimes even like these inversions that we're talking about, we want to make sure that the deal isn't a done deal. If we have a situation where we've already executed a purchase agreement on a piece of real property or we've already got a, a binding letter of intent uh, to sell maybe with a piece of uh, or with some, a closely held stock position, we may have already gone too far to, to avoid the gain being signed to uh, the donor to the trust. So we want to make sure that we're actually doing this planning in advance of those kinds of, of actions. So are some assets better than others? 
Well, certainly some assets uh, are at least easier to work with than others. So when we're talking about publicly traded securities that are out there on free and clear and there's no kind of pending actions in the marketplace with respect to those transactions, I just own it, can transfer it, and then sell it. Those are uh, certainly the easiest types of transactions. They have the fewest uh, potential pitfalls. When we're dealing with real property and closely held business interest, those are certainly uh, potentials for doing a charitable remainder trust. We're going to have a few more I's to dot, a few more T's to cross. And when we're dealing with transactions where we've got this uh, a pending transaction looming out there now, it could be that simply that we've, had, we've been approached by some folks who say, hey, I'd like to buy this piece of property or uh, I'm interested in purchasing your company. In those kind of cases, uh, we're, we're going to have to do an evaluation to say, well, how far have these discussions gone? And if, if we're well in advance of, of there being a binding agreement, then those are still uh, viable and suitable assets. We'll just have a few more I's to dot and T's to cross with respect to making sure, for example, in a closely held business sale that there aren't restrictions on transfer. Maybe create a buy-a-buy-sell agreement between two partners, or maybe there'll be bank covenants that we have to be concerned about, making sure that uh, no one has pledged their stock as collateral or things like that. So we're going to be looking to say, are these are there these kinds of, of issues out there? They don't necessarily make the deal impossible. They just uh, cause us to have to do a little more work to make the deal work. So let's talk about these inversions. Okay, so someone comes to see me and their company is going through an inversion. Is there an opportunity to use a CRT with corporate actions like these inversion mergers uh, that have been the news so frequently? Well, when you look at uh, an inversion merger or any similar type of, uh, of corporate action, uh, the answer is going to be a, uh, it depends because we're going to be concerned about uh, just how far down the road has the deal progressed at the time the client walks into your office. And we can kind of look at this on a continuum from, say, the day before the deal is publicly announced to the day the deal closes, and there might be many months that occur in this between those two events. And so when you look at this, it's fairly clear that the day before this is merger is announced or uh, proposed merger is announced, it's pretty clear that on that day there's, there's really nothing to, out there in the public that uh, your client, unless they're an insider, uh, has any ability to know about. And it seems fairly clear that on that side of the announcement you're in the clear. The day the announcement uh, is made, I think you could uh, you could argue that the clock starts ticking on uh, when the tra- when a potential CRT could be created. The standard uh, that's been announced is largely one of is the deal practically certain to go- to conclude. And so when we look at this kind of practically certain language in the standard, we're going to be looking and saying, well, what kind of contingencies actually exist in the deal? So if you look at these contingencies and we say. Uh, well, are there third-party approvals that have to be obtained? For example, does a regulatory uh, agency have to weigh in and sign off on the transaction for antitrust reasons might be an example. Uh, might there be uh, an intervention required by a foreign party? For example, maybe in some foreign jurisdictions related to an inversion merger, maybe they have to have the sign-off of an agency in that uh, jurisdiction before the deal can be closed. There, it might be that after the deal is announced that some other parties emerge and want to stake a claim uh, to, the, to the company that's uh, the subject of the inversion murder. So maybe there's another suitor that could maybe uh, horn in on the deal. Or it could be that maybe there are some lawsuits that emerge or some legislation. Uh, in the inversion merger example, we're dealing with the threat of regulatory uh, changes or, or even legislative changes designed to discourage the use of inversion mergers. And so the more of those kinds of contingencies that exist, the better uh, position a client is going to be in to consider 
uh, moving down the, uh, the road of a CRT in the, in the face of an inversion merger. But clearly, the, uh, the closer in time to the announcement as opposed to the closer in time to the closing of the agreement, the more you would be able to potentially make an argument the deal doesn't meet the practically certain to conclude standard. Again, you're going to have some clients who, are, who when confronted with this kind of wishy-washy standard, are going to be able to say, well, you know, I'm, I'm a little too conservative to take a chance. And other clients who might be willing to say, boy, I see, the, I see all these contingencies lined up here, and I don't see how we could move forward uh, or how I cannot move forward with this deal because there just seems to be so many obstacles out there. I, I've listed some contingencies. I suppose I should also uh, mention that there are certainly some actions that kind of uh, come along and begin to seal the deal. So, for example, in advance of closing, you might have to have a shareholder vote. And once the shareholder vote has been taken, uh, that was, that's probably going to uh, give you even greater clarity over whether or not the deal is practically certain to close, to close, even if there are some additional contingencies that have to be met after that. Now, Ted, let's talk for a moment about the nightmare scenario. I get too close to the fire. I, I mess up one of these deals, not necessarily an inversion, but any type of transaction. I already have all the documents signed. It's a really bad situation, and I throw the stock into the CRT anyway. So I do not, you know, I'm going to be treated as selling the property. The income goes on my tax return, but I think I'm still stuck with the charitable trust. I mean, how does that play out? Because that should be the thing that scares every lawyer and CPA looking at these deals. Well, right, Bob. There is there is certainly a consequence here. And so the, the nature of the consequence is uh, that the, the gain that I was seeking to avoid by making the transfer to the charitable remainder trust is going to be imputed to me as the donor. So, for example, in, uh, if I have a million-dollar transfer and I had – uh, $75,000 basis, so I'm attempting to avoid a $925,000 gain. Uh, basically, what the Internal Revenue Service is going to argue is that the deal was too ripe at the time I made the transfer and that the $925,000 gain was mine to claim on my income tax return. And accordingly, they're going to seek to adjust my uh, income tax return for the uh, year in question to include that $925,000 gain and tax me on that. And in addition, they're going to look at any uh, penalties that I might have to pay for underpayment of tax or underreporting. Uh, and then the CRT itself is still should still be a valid trust. I think it's arguable that it's still a valid trust. Uh, there was no, really no sham in creating it. There is still a valid remainder interest in the trust. The trust was validly created under state law, presumably. Proceeds from the sale of the stock are still going to be in the CRT, and you might argue in this case, uh, given that we're looking at the nightmare scenario, you might say they're trapped in the CRT because now our donor is sitting here with a tax liability on the $925,000 I've hypothesized, uh, and yet they're not going to have the, the cash from the transaction to pay the tax and any resulting penalties. They will still, however, get the deduction, or they should still get the deduction for funding the charitable remainder trust. Again, they have made a transfer a transfer that presumably is a valid gift under state law. And so they, they should still get the deduction. They still should have a trust that going forward is going to be exempt from any further tax uh, at the trust level, uh, even though, as I stated previously, the distributions coming out of the trust will be taxable to the beneficiary. But the fact that I've had no, uh, that I've now had to basically treat that stock as though it had a basis equal to its value inside of the CRT means I should have even more ability to do some tax-efficient investing with respect to those future distributions. So the big negative is I've got, I'm going to end up having to pay the tax on the gain, and I'm not going to have the, the assets from the original sale 
to pay that tax, uh, and then the penalties that I might end up getting assessed as well. And I think the question on, on here is just how close was I? Was it a real judgment call as whether I was too close to the line, uh, or was it something that was more arguable? That might have a bearing on, on the penalty uh, side of the equation. Ted, on behalf of Lyme Information Services, we certainly want to thank you for being with us today. This is wonderful. Uh, you framed out many complex issues and hopefully set up a good framework for practitioners to move forward. Again, anyone that wants to contact Ted, he, he's at Renaissance, uh, which is in Indianapolis, Indiana. Um, by all means, reach out to Ted. Um, tremendous expertise in this area of charitable remainder trusts. Again, thank you for joining us today. And thanks, Bob, for having me.